Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Is that right? I think that's right. Cut off. We're at the right. end of First Samuel, as far as we know it. Um, we're going to be wrapping things up. At least we'll pause in it going into this next couple of weeks. Uh, but for today, we're going to be in First Samuel chapter 29. First Samuel chapter 29. Uh, so if you have your Bibles handy, go ahead and turn there. And uh, just appreciate you guys being here this morning. Love 11 o'clock. I'm not sure where you guys are at, whether you're ready for lunch or whether you're ready to do this. But uh, we're going to have some fun here. <laughs> Let's do this. That's what I like. Uh, all right. All right. Hey, so as we jump into First Samuel, let me talk to you a little bit about uh, my life and how it... Um, how God has been working in my life, growing me in my understanding, my concept, uh, my worldview. And then we're going to talk about how it affects David, and we're going to talk about how it affects you. Because we all live in this concept, the concept of a uh, worldview, a competing worldview, really. A worldview that competes uh, with the people around us, and may even compete with you as you come to know the Lord. So here's how this works. When I came to know the Lord, put my faith in Jesus, uh, I was either 16 or 1819. Like, I'll let Jesus figure out the details, but somewhere in there, I put my full faith in Jesus. Uh, my story is just messy. So, anyway, uh, coming to the Lord. And so, coming into this, uh, my worldview, worldview means how I view people, culture, morals, like it's the whole package. Uh, my worldview has been shaped by my parents, uh, by my peers, by my school, by television and music, like the whole thing. Like, that, that's has shaped me. So, all my beliefs uh, pre Christ are all just shaped by that. So what I believe to be true about the world. So then I come to a point where I put my faith in Christ. So I've got this worldly uh, or, or secular or pagan worldview. And then now I've got this Christian worldview. And the more I'm reading the Bible and I'm around Christian people or I'm going to church, those two things are kind of, they're kind of clashing a little bit. But I, I figure out a way to make them work together, uh, which is actually called syncretism. It's when you take very biblical and godly ideas and you merge them with um, the, the not-so-godly and biblical, you're just trying to force them, make them work together. And so you live in this confusion area, if you will. But the idea is, as you move towards maturity, that the Christian worldview overtakes the other worldview and eliminates it completely. That's the, that's the goal. So I'm going to walk it out for you in a way that uh, maybe this will make sense. Uh, and it happens in everything. Worldview affects everything. So let's just say as a uh, 16, 19, depending on whenever... Uh, the Lord would give me credit. Um, like, I had this view of uh, the ladies, if you will. So, there's a way I viewed ladies and uh, things that you're allowed to do with the ladies and not allowed to do. So, as a pagan, secular, non-Christian, I'm like, hey, two consenting people, y'all are free, do what you will, you know? And then I come to know Jesus. And then I'm like, ooh, well, how does that work now? And so, then I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe now what it is is if you intend to get married, maybe that, that's what, that was my belief for a while. I was like, well, you're still consenting adults, but if you plan to be married, it's basically the same thing, right? And God knows. And so, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then I grow in my faith a little bit more, and then I realize, ooh, that is not correct. <laughs> the Lord views anything outside of the context of marriage between one husband and one wife uh, as uh, sinful. You're not allowed to do that. So you have to wait until you're married to, to do all the stuff. And so that, like, that was just a, a maturity for me. It took me a while to get there, but eventually uh, I got there. And so that's, I think, a normal journey for people. It's like you got the one view, then it merges with the Christian view, and you try to make them work together. Then you realize you got to choose one or the other, and you reject the one and hopefully move into a Christian worldview, which I think... I think it's a little bit of what David goes through. So in 1 Samuel chapter 29, let me set it up for you. So David and his boys, his, his 600 warriors are in Philistia. And so 
They're in Philistia, they're hanging in Gath, or they had started in Gath, where Achish is king. Uh, and then he gave them a country city that they could move to named Ziklag. And so David and his village of people, his warriors, their wives, their children, they're all living in Ziklag. And he is going in and out of Philistia, warring against the historical enemies of Israel, but telling the people in Philistia that he's been warring against Israel. And so they think David has made himself a stench to Israel as their hope. Um, this started back at the beginning of chapter 28, but then 28 put a pause on it. So 20 Chapter 28 begins with uh, uh, the Philistines are going to war with the Israelites. And then it goes, pause. And then we follow the side quest of Saul as he has this encounter with the wicked witch of Endor, right? So great chapter. You should read the chapter. Just don't read it right now. Read it after church. All right, so they come back here now. Now it's like chapter 29 picks up with, okay, back to the war now between the Israelites and the Philistines. So this is where we're picking up today. And David in this context, he's innocent, but he's going to be judged uh, by the people around him. Let's go to 1 Samuel 29, the first few verses. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. All right, uh, so here's uh, David uh, traveling with the people. Let's start with the map again. Let's go back to our map just to get an idea of where we're at. We're in southern Israel. Southwest Israel in this day and time was where Philistia was located. So the armies of Philistia are gathering. They're marching to the northernmost city in Philistia, which is Aphek, uh, which is clever. Uh, before you're going to invade, you gather all your people. You stay within your borders. Just come right to the edge of your borders so that when you do attack, you will spill out in mass. Uh, and then Israel is currently gathering its army in Jezreel, not currently pictured. Uh, Jezreel will be northeast of uh, where they are right now. So this is where the two armies are gathering, and then towards the south of that is Gath, and that's where uh, Achish and David and his men have marched up from there, and actually David and his men are probably a little below that. All right, so here we are uh, with what's going on. Now, we can understand the hesitation of the Philistines, um, and they're going to articulate it more clearly here in, in just a bit, but David and his men have been, will have been, in Philistia for 16 months. They've been there this time. They've settled. Looks like they're going to live there indefinitely, and we've come to this moment. They've been peaceful the whole time. They have not fought the Philistines while they've lived there. They've been at peace. They've just been doing their own thing. Now, Achish vows for David. He comes out, and he's like, hey, listen, guys. David has been with me the whole time. Like, let's don't freak out about that. Let's not, let's not lose our heads over this. Like, it's going to be okay. All right, go to verse 4. Verse 4. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? All right, so they are legitimately afraid that heads are going to roll. That's what, that's what they're worried about. So all the Philistine commanders, the leaders, like they get it. It makes sense. They're over here. They're having a huddle. They're like, what is wrong with Achish? Does he not see how dangerous this is? Now, to be fair, their fear is not unprecedented. If you go back to chapter 14 in 1 Samuel, chapter 14, this exact same thing happened where the Philistines were going to war with the Israelites. And in the middle of it, the servants of the Philistines who were Hebrew turned on the Philistines and started to fight the Philistines from within the camp. But there was a big difference. 
Those guys who turned and began to fight back then, they were servants. They were armor bearers and cooks and, you know, whatever. They were people who carried luggage. These are warriors. This is 600 fierce warriors with, with years of history of successful battles. Like if those guys turn, it's devastating. And so the Philistine leaders are like, we're not going to risk this. Achish, you're an idiot. Send that guy back to where he came from. So that was, that's their conclusion on what needs to happen here. Verse 5. Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. All right, so very familiar with this call and response song. Uh, this hit first debuted on the charts in chapter 18, went all the way to number one. Everybody was singing it. Made the Philistine playlist by chapter 21, and it was super catchy. Everybody loved it. You know, so they would go around and they would just sing it to each other. Saul struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. It was just like back and forth thing. It was a song, it's fun, had a nice beat, you could dance to it, quite literally. So um, now we don't. I don't know if we have something quite like that. I'm sure we have something. Like we have a phrase that we use. There's a very churchy phrase that's a call and response phrase. Uh, so it works like this. If I say to you, God is good, you would say? All the time. All the time. And there's people sitting here right now I know who are like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, like, yeah, it's a thing. It's like it's so much a thing that if I'm walking through the grocery store shopping and I hear two people talking and one of them say, you know, God is good, I'll just be like, all the time. You know, it's just in there. I, can't, I don't even have to think about it. It just pops out. Uh, so, like, it was just kind of that thing. And so this was just kind of, they would do it. But it was catchy. It got in your head. It stuck with you. It's like, you know, anytime, well, I call it an earworm. It like gets in there and it just keeps on digging. It's like when you walk by somebody and they're humming a song and then it's in your head the rest of the day which happened to me just this last week. Uh, so Tarsha, who works in our front office, um, she was humming uh, my favorite things from The Sound of Music as I walked by her desk. And it was in my head all day. All, right, all day. And if you're familiar with that song and now it's in your head, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, it just, it gets in there and it sticks. But the problem with this song is this song was about how fierce of a warrior David is. So, like, this, this is a bad song. Like, they don't want this because the people he's wiping out to get that moniker, to get that name, is the Philistines. And so it's a celebration of how David has wiped out Philistines. So they're like, Achish, what are you thinking? This guy can't go with us. All right, so here's what's going on here. The leaders understand that if David goes into battle with them, he'll step into a crisis of conscience, right? When he draws his sword to go against that first Israelite, he's going to have to make a decision. And you don't want to be uncertain about that decision in the midst of battle. And you don't want that guy behind you with his sword out. That's what they're thinking. Like, we cannot have this. Now, this clash of uh, conscience is really what you're going to end up with is a clash of worldviews. That is the way the Philistines viewed the Israelites, viewed the world, and the way the Israelites are viewing the Philistines and the way they viewed the world. You have a clash of worldviews. So let me pause here for just a second. We talked about this even previously with David. Like David wants to be accepted, but he wants to be accepted without having to compromise his morals. And so now he's in the, the wrestling part of how am I really going to make that work out? I think it is normal for all of us to desire to be accepted by the people among whom we live. But as a Christ-honoring Christian, if that's how you would describe yourself, a Christ-honoring Christian... There are beliefs in our culture that we just can't accept, we can't go along with. Uh, so for instance, if I get, if I take you, if you say I'm a Christ-honoring Christian, that's who I am, I'll say, okay, let me take you, and let's go, we're going to go grab a guy out here who, he does not claim the love of the Lord, and claim to be a Christian, this is just, this is not his world, and I give you both a sheet of paper with some words, and I ask you to define them, and I put these words on there, love, grace, acceptance, hate. 
And I say, just write me your definition. You understand your definition. Your worldview just pours out from that. And so even if they sound similar by way of definition, the way you live them out will be completely different. And so there's definitely a clash of worldview. At some point, we have to choose whether or not we're going to parrot the world as we lean for their acceptance or stand on the word of God and risk rejection by those that we live among. So um, let me just ask you a question on that. So how do you think, if we take the, just the North American church, the Christian church in America, how do you think we're doing with our worldview? Do you think we align more with a biblical worldview or an unbiblical worldview? What do you think? All right, we, you don't have to think too hard. I'm going to tell you. Uh, so uh, there's a website you can go to called worldviewcheckup.com. So worldviewcheckup.com. Now I'm going to tell you, if you go to worldviewcheckup.com and uh, when your first, first pulls up, it'll say this link is no longer valid, click here. So I'm telling you, the first thing you'll see is this link is no longer valid, but then you do the click here. And what you do is you take a test and they'll ask you a bunch of questions. And what they do is they take uh, biblical understanding and then they rearrange some of the thoughts and they give it to you and they're like, is this biblical or unbiblical? Would you say A, B, C, or D? Where would you vote on this? So you take a test. And when you get to the end of the test, it tells you whether or not your worldview aligns with a biblical worldview. So many, many people have taken this test. Would you care to guess the percentage of Christians uh, that actually have a biblical worldview according to this test? Again, you don't have to respond. I'm going to tell you. 17%. So 17% of Christians have a biblical worldview, which means 83% of Christians do not. And I know, I know what it is. It's the, you came to Christ, you want to be accepted by the people around you, so you buy into ideas that you know aren't right, but you're trying to squeeze them into your Christian faith, and you're hoping that, like, okay, that I, I'm going to live in this kind of broken, broken world. And I would say, listen, the world already knows that as a Christian, you're not on board. So stop trying to be on board. Just be on board with the Lord. You know, that's all you got to do is, is buy into him. Now, it may be ignorance, so we want to pour ourselves into scripture study and uh, pursuing the Lord. But yeah, who knows? This, but it's, it's bad. Um, so David, though, he wants to choose the path of peace. No matter what goes on in his life, he's choosing the path of peace. He wants to honor God. He wants to honor the Philistines. Uh, it's really hard. He's, he's wrestling here. So now go to verses 6 and 7. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in this campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Now, I like how he, um, he starts off in this. He says, as the Lord lives. Now, he's probably referring to David's God, which you might be like, well, what's a Philistine referring to David's God? Well, they're polytheistic. And I guess... One advantage, if you will, of, of being polytheistic is that every God's okay. And so he's like, you know, may your God honor you. Like, as, as your Lord lives, uh, I, you know, you've been honest. So he makes this oath by David's God. Yeah, no big deal. Um, but anyway, he says this, hey, listen, I, you know I like you. I think you're great. You've never dishonored me. These guys, they hate you. And so here's what I'm just asking. And I'm asking, please, 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 could you leave quietly? Because, like, listen, if you cause a problem, you're 600 warriors. If you cause a problem here, like, it's going to be horrible for everybody. It's also going to be horrible for me. And I, I don't want it horrible for me. I got good standing here. I need you to go back. So we just leave peaceably, leave quietly. Um, that, that would really help me out. So here's the response, verse 8. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? 
What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? All right, now this is an interesting response because this has been what the other guys have been saying, not what Achish has been saying. So when David protests, he's like, what have I done? Why are you so displeased with me? Achish is like, I'm not. It's, it's these guys. Like, I just, I can't have you here. So here's what leads me to think there's something else going on here. And we're just never going to know, but I think there's some healthy conjecture that we can uh, step into. So one question for me would be, what is David really planning on doing? Like, that would, that would tell us a lot. Like, if you could pull David aside and say, David, when push comes to shove, what would you have, what would you have done in this battle? I think that would have been interesting to know. So I wonder if at this point, David is demonstrating loyalty even to a fault where he's saying, no, listen, I would have done this. I would have slaughtered Israelites, which would call into question whether or not they ever would have accepted him as their future king. Uh, So maybe he was saying that. But maybe, because we already know this about David, maybe he's being deceptive. Maybe um, he knows that, like, he didn't want to do it anyway, and uh, he's trying to lean into this just a bit. I mean, like, one thing could be, it could be that the the rest of the Palestinian, or Palestinian, uh, sorry, Philistines, I, I got other things in my head right now. Uh, it could be that the Philistines, the rest of the Philistines, who are over the whole country, have already seen David coming and going, and so they know. So they're like, hey, listen, we already know this guy's up to something. Like, he has not been killing Israelites like he said. It could be that. And it could be that David's fishing for that. It could be David's going like, why not? What have they said about me? What are you saying about me? Like, maybe he's trying to fish for that, whether, so he can go back to his guys and go, guys, we've been found out. We got to go. Now, it could be that. Uh, It could be, though, with his vehement protest that he's just trying to make himself look even better and more trustworthy, which is something we're all familiar with. Uh, So let me just give an example from our uh, household just a little bit. So when we come to a Saturday in our home, my wife and I view Saturdays very differently. Uh, I think my wife is here. Hey, baby. Um, So uh, just she knows this. So when I wake up on Saturday, Saturday is a free day, right? This is it is. PJs, cartoons, cereal. It is like, we just, well, let's see what the day has. Let's just, let's hit it. Let's enjoy it. And so I think my wife would say, uh, Saturday is great because if you get up early and start hard at it, you can get a lot done all day, right? And we're just in different worlds with that. Um, So let's imagine that we wake up and my wife comes to me. She says, listen, we got a lot of stuff uh, I want to do today. Uh, But the one thing I need to do is I need the whole house vacuum today. And so we need to do that, meaning you need to do that. So could you get on that? And so that she, so she gives me that job. And so now I've got this chore to do, and I'm like, oh, I didn't really want to do that today. And then she steps back in. She's like, oh, actually, I just realized we can't forget it. You can't vacuum the whole house today. The vacuum's not even working anyway. And and then what's my response at that point? What? I don't get to vacuum. Like, I was already looking forward to it. Like, I had this plan in my head about where it'd start, where it'd plug in, unplug, where I'm going to dump the stuff. Like, I've already got this thought. I don't get to vacuum. I love vacuuming. I was going to serve you today. Dang. You know? Now, I'm lying. <laughs> but in the moment, hopefully, my wife was looking at me going, he is so sweet. Like, what a, what a great guy. Like, he'd already thought I was going, oh, I love him. 
right? Like, so that's hopeful. So look, what you're doing is you're just trying to milk a situation. And my, my suspicion is that maybe David's milking this uh, just a bit. But one thing is this. David was never forced to choose. David was never forced to choose. He never had a sword in his hand facing his own people where now, where now he's got to make a decision. And can I just say in this, I, I think we need to recognize the mercy of God. Um, it, it's like this. Has God ever gotten you out of a situation where you came to the edge of something and one more step would have been sin, but before you even made the decision, God knocked you off course? Like, if you've been walking with Jesus long enough, that's happened. There have been times where you came to the edge of something, and if you took that next step, and I can think of situations in my own head that I would never share with you, uh, where, where you come to the edge of that, and you're thinking, I'm, I might do this thing, and then just God knocks you off course, and then you never had to face whether or not you would have done it or not, but you suspect you might have. So it feels to me like this is the sovereignty of God and all of its glory working itself out. Now, would that it were that we were so filled with the Holy Spirit and self-control, which is the fruit that he bears in our lives, that we'd make those choices on our own. But every now and then, the sovereignty of God and in his grace, he pushes you off course, which is what he did to David, sparing David from having to make that decision. Go to verse nine. Uh, And Achish answered David and said, I know that you're as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. All right, so now we kind of we come to the, the end of this here, and we are going to pause for the next few weeks. We're going to go ahead and hit the Christmas message and, and dig into that. But for here, as we've been doing every week, let's talk about lessons learned. And I do, I do really think this. Like, even though there is no, thus saith the Lord, you as a Christian should do likewise. What we do see is we see the character of God revealed, and then we see how enemies of God respond to it, and we see how friends of God respond to it. And so by looking at David, his response, how he's interacting with the Lord, I do think there are things that we can learn. And so one of the lessons learned for me is this. Christians live in the world, but we are no longer of the world. So have you heard that phrase before? As Christians, you're supposed to be in the world, but don't be of the world. Okay, you've probably heard that. So um, it's, not, it's not actually quoting a Bible verse, but it is definitely quoting a Bible concept. And the idea is that even though we live here and, um, and not all the world thinks like we do, we still need to make sure we stay faithful to the Lord uh, and not buy into the principles of the world that surrounds us. We're part of a new kingdom. We submit to new kingdom rules. Uh, those outside the church, the, the modern day Philistines, if you will, they, like, they just don't view life the same way we do. In John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking. This is what he says. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Christians consistently, no matter the generation, first century today, Christians consistently are in disagreement with the worldview that surrounds them. So there are many issues that surround us, and it it affects everything. It affects everything. But let me just take one of the most uh, preeminent in our culture today. That uh, in our generation, there has been a disassociation uh, between uh, gender and biological sex. All right? Now, that's something weird. I, not something I ever thought I would see in my day. But, but all of culture is bought into it. And if you don't buy into it, like you're in trouble with culture, right? But we know that God says otherwise. And so now you have to make a decision. Do I try to pair it with the world once or do I stand on the word of God? Right? And so here's, here's a better question for you. If, if I'm between the world and between God, let me ask you this. Which one is more loving? Do I affirm what the world says? Is that more loving and make people feel better? Do I affirm what God says? Is that more loving because he knows how people are wired, worked, and designed? So I think you have to side with God's will on this. 
And so when you're in an environment where people are really pushing, uh, which really is a political agenda, when they're really pushing this on you, like, you've got to buy into this, you've got to buy into this. Like, the reason I can't buy into this is it would be unloving to do so. I know you think it's the opposite. And you might even say it's hate speech, but it's not. It's actually love. The hate is towards the word and the will of God. But I'm not, but I'm not going to condemn you for it because I used to be that way too. So let me just share with you what the Word of God says. And if you give me a moment, I'd love to talk to you about Jesus and his plan for your life. So this is kind of how we do it. Like, we need to be people who stand on truth but do it in love. But we don't concede because the Bible already says one thing, and people don't think we're going to live otherwise if we declare that we're Christians. Jesus' high priestly prayer says this. So right before he leaves the earth, right the night he's about to be crucified, uh, this is what he prays for his disciples. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. All right, that's a, that's a really important phrase. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, you know what would be really interesting? What would be really interesting is if the moment you put your faith in Christ, God took you into paradise and glory, right? That would be really interesting, right? It would make witnessing really interesting. Um, like, I mean, like every church service, like only 10 people are left at the end of the day, right? <laughs> of course, what's the pastor doing there? Like, um, <laughs> but like this idea, if you went to glory right after you were saved, like why doesn't God do that? And then you think about this. Like think about the person that led you to the Lord. They shared the Lord with you and it was just in that moment where the spirit worked and you responded and you put your faith in Jesus. Like if they had been taken to glory when they first believed, they wouldn't have been sharing with you later. Right? And so all these people in our lives who have so affected us because of their passion, their love for Jesus, like we need them here. But if you were to ask them, if you were to ask us, we would all say, this world tears at my heart. It is so difficult at times to live here. And yet, people need to see what happens when we wrestle with truth and grace in the context of this world. Right? They've got to see it. And they've got to hear from us this great testimony of Jesus, despite the fact that life can be so difficult at times. That's what they need. Which takes me to my final lesson learned here. It's all about Jesus. It is really all about Jesus. The, the hidden meaning behind 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, is all what God is doing. Because he's going to present to us this king that we beg for. Not we, but historical people. They beg for a king, and he gave him Saul. Now they looked at Saul, and they're like, Saul's a horrible king. And he's like, all right. I'll give you a king after my own heart. I'll give you David. And then you watch David's life, and you're like, he's also got some issues. And God's like, oh, you don't like either of those human kings? I got a better king. I'll, I'll bring you a king. You want to see a king? I'll give you a king. It's all about Jesus. That's where it's all pointing, right? And so I would say this even about your life. Your life is all about Jesus. And here's the thing. You don't even have to get that. You don't even have to get, it just is. Like I would, the guy outside the church we talked about earlier, the mythical guy who's like, you know, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in, and if he asked me what life is all about, I'd say, it's all about Jesus. And he said, well, not in my life. I'd be like, actually, absolutely in your life. You just, you just don't get it yet. Your life is all about Jesus, one way or the other. And so at Christmas, I love Christmas. The reason I love Christmas is for just a moment, people begin to feel like something's going right with the world, right? Like there's just, like, there's just a little more kindness. There's just a little more grace. There's just a little more generosity. And there's something in people that's just like, mm, that's just, there's something about that that feels right. Now, devoid of Christ, it's still completely empty. But there is something there that points them towards the direction of Jesus. And so here's the thing. You're still in the world. That's why he's left you here. We're the ones who can complete the thought. Like there's something right with the world in this. Yes, there is. Let me tell you, it points to the Savior 
that God brought to this world. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for a moment this morning just to pause and to reflect on this journey to think about what you're doing in the hearts and lives of people. And you've never stopped. Lord, you're always <laughs> challenging us, forcing us to engage whether or not we're gonna submit to you or submit to the whims of this world. Lord, may it be that at the end of the day, we put our faith fully in you. As we step into the Christmas season, Lord, there's people around us that are confused, but they are tasting just a bit of the, the grace of God, the glory of God, the generosity of God. May it be that we can help them complete that thought by introducing them to Jesus. But we're reminded, Lord, that Christmas is much less about a baby and much more about a king. In your holy name, amen.